Our scripture reading for today is Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, and it's on page 780 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. But first, may we pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. So by your spirit and light, our way as we read your word. So by your spirit and light, our way as you read, we read your word. Give us eyes to see that you want what you want us to see. Give us ears to hear all you want us to hear. And give us hearts that might be opened and transformed at the reading of your holy word. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people sit. Good morning. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before its shearer, it's silent. And so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of the people... And he might, and, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the many of sin and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you, Pam. It's amazing that Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was even born. And yet as we read through Isaiah 53, we see that it's a very accurate description of the way that Jesus died. For in verse 5, you remember it said that he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus' hands and feet and side were pierced for our transgressions. If you read the gospel accounts closely, you'll see that when Jesus is arrested, he he, he doesn't really try to defend himself. In fact, he speaks very little. As verse 7 said, he opened not his mouth. 
In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus identifies himself as the suffering servant when he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12, for we read in Luke, chapter 2, verse 37, for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. His suffering on a cross, his death was for our sins. It was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But today's Easter, it's not Friday. We're here to talk about the resurrection, right? I mean, Jesus is alive. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's why we're here. Now, in order to talk about the resurrection and how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, we've got to turn to the New Testament, specifically to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It may be found on page 1222 of your Red Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would encourage you to take that Red Pew Bible. Turn to page 1222. Now, before I begin reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's good to give a little bit of background about, well, the city of Corinth and the church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul actually helped start many, many years ago. Now, Corinth in the first century was a bustling metropolis. It was a port city. It was filled with people from all over the world. There were Romans and there were Greeks. There were over 700,000 people living in the city of Corinth. And the population was mostly Roman and Greek Now, the church in Corinth had a few Jews, but it was mostly filled with Gentiles, non-Jews, specifically Greeks, according to Acts chapter 18. Now, in the first century, most Greeks were polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and they believed in life after death. In fact, most religions today believe in some form, some story about life after death. But in the first century, there weren't any Greek or Roman religions that talked about a bodily resurrection And so the Greeks were struggling to understand how Jesus could have had a bodily resurrection. That's not the kind of thing that we we see every now and every day, is it? It reminds me of the story. There was this faithful baggage handler for an airlines that I will not mention because I've been in the news lately for some really bad customer service. This faithful baggage handler was moving the luggage to get it on the conveyor belts for the customers to pick up. And he noticed that there was this animal crate with a dead cat inside. He thought to himself, the last thing our airlines need is another bad story about how we're not taking care of people's luggage. And so he told another baggage handler, and they said, well, hey, let's fix this problem. And so they started talking about what they could do. They said, you know, this cat looks like just about any other orange tomcat. And there's that animal shelter just two blocks away. What if we go and try and see if we can find a a live cat to replace this dead cat with? And, well, the owner won't be any wiser, right? And so they they go the extra mile. I mean, talk about customer service. They go the extra mile and go to the animal shelter. And sure enough, they find a, a yellow or orange tomcat that looks just like the one that was dead. So they replace it, put the collar on there that says fluffy, put it back in its uh, animal cage and, and get it on the conveyor belt. Well, by this time, it's been a couple of hours. And so the owner of the cat is pretty upset, wondering why it's taking so long. Has this airline's lost her cat? Well, sure enough, here comes this animal cage with the cat inside. And the cat's licking its paws, just looking right at her. Well, immediately she becomes irate and upset. And she grabs that animal cage and takes it to the help desk and it says, this is not my cat. And the woman says, well, is that, is that your animal cage there? And he goes, yes, this is my cage, but this is not my cat. And the helper looks inside and says, well, it says there on the collar, your cat's name is Fluffy. Isn't that your cat named Fluffy? I mean, doesn't this look like your cat? Well, yes, it looks like Fluffy. And yes, this is Fluffy's cage, but this is not Fluffy. And she says, well, how are you so sure it's not Fluffy? Because Fluffy was dead. <laughs> I was shipping him to bury him in my backyard. 
It didn't matter what that woman at the help desk tried to say. There was no way she was going to convince this woman that her, that her cat had come back to life. <laughs> Resurrection is not the kind of thing we see normally, right? So, so the Greeks were suspect of this idea that Jesus had had a bodily resurrection from the dead. Is it really that important to believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead? I mean, most Americans today believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Muslims even believe that he was a a great prophet. Hindus like Mahatma Gandhi honor Jesus and his teaching. They actually tried to follow his his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek and nonviolence. Time Magazine, even just a few years ago, said that Jesus was the most influential person in all of history. Isn't that enough? Do we really need to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Does it really make that big of a difference? According to the Apostle Paul, it does. According to the Apostle Paul, the bodily resurrection of Jesus changes everything. To see how the bodily resurrection changes you and me today, I would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 23. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper to write this letter to the church in Corinth so that you might give them instructions. Lord, as we read this letter today here at First Presbyterian Church of Amarillo, may you speak to us, may we hear from you. Open our eyes and open our ears that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then... He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, as a Jew, the Apostle Paul, in fact, he was a Pharisee, had lived his entire life understanding that at the final judgment day, there is going to be a great resurrection of the dead. We read about this in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Where Daniel writes, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who, was, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That's the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul was raised on these Jewish scriptures. He understood that on the final day of judgment, there would be this great resurrection. But his non-Jewish, mostly Greek congregation in Corinth did not know the Old Testament stories. In fact, the Greeks uh, in their religion had a, had a doctrine of the immortality of the soul. They believed that when a person died, the soul left the body and would eventually inhabit another body. For Greeks, especially Gnostics, the type of Greek, the soul or the spirit was good, but the body and the things of this world were bad and evil. The Greeks thought of the body as a, as a hindrance to true life, and they looked for the time when the soul would be free from its bondage at death. The idea of a a bodily resurrection was ludicrous to the Greeks. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching in Athens, and and they're all listening to him intently, and then he starts to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and the people begin to mock him. Paul points out in verses 16 and 19 of our text this morning, though, that if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then there is no victory over sin and death. And those who have died in the Lord are dead with no hope of resurrection. I like the way Eugene Peterson actually translates 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. You can see it on the wall there. If corpse can't be raised, then Christ wasn't because he was indeed dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. It's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is, the truth is Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. As Paul makes it very clear that the resurrection changes everything, as Paul explains in 21 to 23 of our text, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man 
has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We know from Genesis chapter three that Adam and Eve, our first parents, committed that original sin of eating the forbidden fruit in the garden. And when they did so, all of, corrupt, all of creation was corrupted for they were cast out of the garden of paradise. And, and they were forced to toil the soil and, and, and till the soil to try to make it grow. And, and we have now inherited this sinful nature from our first parents that left to our own, we are prone to wander. We are prone to disobey and sin against God. But God, in his great love for all of us, he doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he sends his one and only son here to this earth who is fully God and fully man to live in perfect obedience to our heavenly father and then die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins on a cross. And then on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday, he rose again, conquering sin and death. In fact, if you continue to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see that in verses 54 to 57, Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no assurance of victory over sin and death. The resurrection of Jesus lets us know that Jesus was raised, and one day we will be raised. Death will not have the final say for those who call upon the name of the Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As Jesus promises that criminal who was hanging next to him in Luke chapter uh, 23, verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That confessing criminal who says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. On the cross, Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the bodily resurrection of Jesus changes everything because it lets us know that that Jesus was who he says he was, the son of God, the great I am. And he is faithful to fulfill his words. If you read the gospel accounts, all of them tell us that before he got to Jerusalem, he told his disciples multiple times that he was going to be crucified and on the third day he was going to rise and it happened just like he said it would. And so we know that when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples in John 14 and telling them he's going to leave them, that he's going to our heavenly father's house and he's, he's going to go and prepare a place for each one of us. For, for in his father's house, there are many rooms. He's going to prepare a place for each one of us. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus lets us know that he was who he says he was, that he's faithful to his word. And it lets us know that death does not have the final say. That eternity awaits all of us who call upon the name of the Lord. So how are we living in light of eternity? A few weeks ago, I saw a sermon by Francis Chan. He had a powerful illustration I want to share with you this morning. Francis Chan's a a preacher in California. Uh, You can YouTube him. He's got some really good sermons, better than mine. But uh, he's not here, and I am, so I'm going to use his illustration. Anyway, uh, he talks about, imagine this rope. This is over a 100-foot rope. This rope is a timeline, a timeline of all eternity. And this red piece... That's your life. Look at your life in light of eternity. The average lifespan for American men today is about 82 years old. 
I can see some of you are above average. Well done. (laughs) Thanks be to God. How are we living in light of eternity? Because the scripture is real clear that the choices we make during this little segment of our life on this earth impacts the rest of eternity. What are we gonna do about Jesus? Jesus invites all of us to come to him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I don't know about you, but I could, I could use some rest. And if my salvation is dependent upon my ability to obey God's word, to do all that God says, to always be faithful, it doesn't look very good for me. I don't know about you, but it doesn't look good, very, very good for me. But if my salvation is dependent upon receiving the free gift of Christ's atoning sacrifice, then that's looking a lot better. In fact, in, we read just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, we read that Christ died on the cross according to the scriptures. Yes, his death on the cross is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Point out that our sins are atoned for with his death. Have you said yes to Jesus? Because without Jesus, eternity doesn't look very good. But with Jesus, eternity looks really good. Have you said yes to Jesus? Because the choices we make here will impact the rest of eternity. Now, if you're like me, you may have said yes to Jesus a long, long, long time ago. In fact, you can't remember a time when you didn't say yes to Jesus. You've grown up in the church. You've been praying to Jesus. You've been singing about Jesus, how he loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, or maybe you're like the Apostle Paul, who made a a radical decision. If you'll remember, Paul's name was Saul, his Jewish name was Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians, and then God blinds him, and he encounters the risen Jesus himself. That's why Jesus can, Paul can write with such authority in the resurrection of Jesus, because he saw the risen Jesus, just as Peter and John and James and all the other disciples and the 500 people he talks about, they saw the risen Jesus, and they lived their life in response to that reality. And so Paul said yes to Jesus. Maybe you've had some kind of radical conversion experience like Paul. It's for those of us who have said yes to Jesus. We know that when we die, we will will get to be with Jesus in paradise. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. But did you know that the Bible also teaches us that there are rewards in heaven? Now, it's true that when we come to faith in Christ, we've we've got that assurance that we'll be with Christ in heaven. But what we do here on this earth impacts the rewards that we will receive. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is letting us know that if we help those who are his followers, help those fulfill the great commission by helping them and assisting them on their journeys, we will receive a reward. In fact, the apostle Paul writes to slaves, bond servants, in his letter to the Colossians, uh, in Colossians chapter three, verse 23, he also talks about rewards. He says, Colossians chapter three, verse 23, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. God seems to reward those who are diligent, whether as an employee or as an employer. People who sit around and simply wait for Jesus to come aren't going to get a lot of rewards, right? Jesus wants us to to do all that we can to help further the work of his kingdom, to help point others to him, that everything we might do, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Are we living in such a way that we bring glory and honor to God? Because as Presbyterians, we know that that's the purpose of life, you know? Rick Warren wrote that book, Purpose Driven Life. Well, he went to Fuller Seminary, met a whole bunch of Presbyterians, and realize, wow, this is the purpose of life. It comes from us. It's the, well, the Bible, really. But First Corinthians and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains in its opening question. I'll ask the question, then you answer it, please, with me. What is the chief end of man? That's what life's about: bringing glory and honor to God, to enjoy Him as we. Do so. In fact, as Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, he says this You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, and, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Are we living in such a way that our lives are pointing to the light of Christ, to the unconditional, sacrificial love of Christ? Do people know that we are Christians by our love, as that old song used to say? Or as Trey Little, our distinguished Morris preacher, said several weeks ago to us, are we making Jesus visible in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our social circles? Are we living in such a way that we're bringing glory and honor to God? Did you know that Jesus teaches us also that not only are there rewards in heaven, but there are also treasures in heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, in that Sermon on the Mount, in verses 19 to 21, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, as Americans, we are really good at storing up treasures here on this earth. In fact, we've got a $38 billion self-storage industry that began in Odessa, Texas. And I'm from Midland. I went to Midland Lee, and I'd like to blame Odessa, Texas for this huge self-storage facility. It's a big high school rival of ours. Did you know there are more self-storage facilities in the United States than there are McDonald's, Jack in the Box, and Subway restaurants combined? There are a lot of self-storage facilities. It's a growing sector in our economy. Why? Because we're good at collecting and storing our treasures here on this earth. But if everything we own is simply temporal, then why don't we make the most of those things and let others use them rather than keeping them in storage? Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but how one day I'm going to use that item in my self-storage facility. I'm just waiting for that day to come. My friends, one day we're all going to be dead or Jesus may come back first, whichever happens. But what about today? Why don't we give those things to others who might be able to use them today? If all the stuff on this earth is temporal, then why do we work so hard, spend all of our time and our talents to accumulate earthly stuff rather than treasures in heaven? 
But what are treasures in heaven exactly? I like the answer, uh, the definition that John Stott, the New Testament scholar, gives in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, surely we may say that to lay up treasures in heaven is to do anything on earth whose effect lasts for eternity. It seems to refer to such things as these, the development of Christ-like character, since all we can take with us to heaven is ourselves. The increase of faith, hope, and love, all of which Paul says abides in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Growth in the knowledge of Christ, whom one day we will see face to face. The act and the endeavor of, by prayer and witness to introduce others to Christ, so they too might inherit eternal life. And the use of our money for Christian causes, which is the only investment whose dividends are everlasting. To store up treasures in heaven looks like any time a Von Murphy helps lead our children's ministry on Sunday mornings at 9.45, or Scott Gilmore to talk about our kids, or Tom Cambridge to talk to our children about Jesus and how Jesus loves them, helping build that next generation for the kingdom of Christ. Storing up treasures in heaven, it looks like any time we love our neighbor as ourselves and we point others to Jesus. Like our, our work with Heal the City on Monday nights, there's a free medical clinic in the San Jacinto neighborhood that Alan Keister, a doctor in our church, helps start and many doctors in our church are involved with. Anytime we take the word of God to people through a word of encouragement or a note, we are helping invest in the kingdom of God. It's like a woman, a young woman I know, who leads a Bible study at her work. It's not a Christian ministry. She doesn't work for, but during the lunch hour, every other week, she gathers together with the other administrative assistants to read God's word and to pray. Anytime we help point others to Jesus, we're investing in the kingdom of God. We're we're building up those eternal treasures to the glory of his name. What are we doing with the time, the talents, and the treasures that we have during this short span of life so we might make as big a difference, as big an impact for the kingdom of God for all eternity? To find out how you might use your time, talents, and treasures, I would encourage you to come back next week as we begin a new sermon series on moving from success to significance, talking about what it means to take your faith into the workplace, to live out your faith so that you're pointing others to Jesus, to raise your family in such a way that they all know Christ, to to invest in relationships so that others might come to know Christ through you. For that's how we store up treasures in heaven, all to the glory of his name. May we all seek to do all that we can to live in light of eternity, to store up those treasures in heaven for him. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're the God who loves us and that you have made yourself known to us in Jesus Christ and that you have conquered sin and death for us so that we know that death does not have the final say. And Lord, we recognize that in light of eternity, our time here on this earth is very short. So Lord, help us to make most of the time that we have. Help us to do all that we can to use our time, talents, and treasures to the glory of your name, that others might come to know you as Lord, that we might build up those treasures in heaven you've called us to that we might make disciples of your son. We pray this in the